The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. So how would you like to be introduced? Okay, I'm normally introduced uh, along the lines of um, I'm David Chandler, Professor of International Relations at the University of Westminster. Um, I work across a number of areas of, I guess, critical international thought, more recently on resilience, neoliberalism, our contemporary moment of the Anthropocene, um, political ontologies, different things. If I went on to list them, it would be boring. One of my favorite books that I talk about all the time across sublation media is your book on the neoliberal subject with Julian Reed. Could you give me some insight into how that book developed? Because I know that you and Julian Reed don't necessarily agree on everything. So how did you come to, to writing that book? Good question. It was a while ago. I noticed I had a look at the book of 2016. So we must have written it maybe like 2014 or something around 10 years ago. And how it came about was, as you rightly say, that we didn't always like see eye to eye on issues, although we were both quite critical of resilience and what we understood as a degrading of the human subject. And we thought it might be fun to sort of get together and write something collectively. Um, as it worked out, we found it quite difficult to literally work collectively at that point. Although later we wrote a book on becoming indigenous where we did work collectively, um, a sort of a follow-up book with the same press, Roman and Littlefield. Uh, anyway, so at that stage, we weren't really quite on the same page. So we just chose like chapters to counterposition our thoughts on resilience, adaptation and vulnerability. And we got a colleague to sort of engage with us in the conclusion where we drew out our different perspectives. I guess, um, 10 years ago, I was probably more Marxist uh, and Julian's sort of more post-structuralist. So there's there's an underlying difference of where we're coming from, although we shared the same sort of critique. Um, so yeah, um, so it was sort of an experiment, I guess, at, at that point. That's actually a really good way to get into things. So what do you mean by the degrading of the subject? So like with all concepts, I guess neoliberalism is, is understood in quite opposing ways. So maybe it's easier to think about resilience, which has a sort of contemporary life as a way of understanding things. And maybe that's an easier way in than using neoliberalism immediately. And generally speaking, the way we use resilience at the moment, it's not like, you know, a strong, capable subject capable of fighting off all difficulties, and much more an understanding that we have to be more adaptive, that we have to sort of accept we can't sort of shape a political agenda. We can't just resolve problems. We're sort of in a relationship where we have to work with problems. And increasingly in the policy discourses of resilience, problems 
actually become more like our friends. They're like registers of issues and of questions, maybe enabling us to think more about how we live our own lives and what we're doing. So it's a sort of more humbling experience. Resilience is still, they're like bad things, but the way we understand an approach to the bad thing or the problem begins to be transformed. And so instead of like, I guess, the romantic view of the strong domineering subject, we have a different subject, more humble, more relational, more sort of attentive to the world and their entanglements with it. And it's quite possible that if you sort of think through resilience in those ways, the, the understanding of neoliberal can also be seen a bit like that, that um, what's neoliberalism doing vis-a-vis -vis a classical or neoclassical liberal understanding is beginning to question some of the assumptions of naturalness, of autonomy, and thinking more rela relationally. And in thinking mm -hmm. relationally, I guess neoliberalism is thinking more humbly. It's not just saying markets just work, humans are just rational, democracy always fight, you know, ends up with the most reasonable outcome. It's sort of saying maybe we have to take a little bit more care out of how those things are structured, how they're enabled, these sorts of things that we can't just assume that everything works in this sort of abstract, naturalized way. And if we saw neoliberalism like that, even though there's a focus on individuals and their thinking, individuals become more products or outcomes rather than subjects and originators. And in thinking like that, we pay much more attention to difference and to relationality. So it is not necessarily a negative approach. You can see a lot of sense, particularly in our contemporary, more humble and more relational times, but it's a different approach. And so I guess thinking through the consequences and the limits of a different approach is sort of a, a thing that should be put out there. You mentioned that you have kind of um, at least a Marxist past. A lot of what you're saying right now, people might be surprised to learn is a neoliberal approach. And it, people might think it sounds kind of progressive, at least, or um, anti-capitalist. You mentioned that you're quite critical of this. And I think someone maybe from the left listening to what you've just said would say, well, that all sounds really good. Isn't that questioning capitalism? What would you say to that? Um, it depends what we mean by capitalism, I guess. So I think a good example would be a sort of a neoclassical liberal approach would say that markets work naturally if they're left alone. So we could maybe have something like global capitalism and maybe things would even out and there would be development and the freer markets were, uh, the more benefits would, would maybe trickle down, it might take a while, but the benefits would be shared. But if you think about uh, neoliberal or neo-institutional economists, they still say we have capitalism, but they say there's no such thing as global capitalism. So a little bit like we have many different capitalisms and how our capitalisms are very much depends on our institutions and the choices that we make and the path dependencies that we're trapped in. So you get a very different approach, a different understanding of capitalism and how we might address the problems of capitalism. So whether we looked at, I don't know, Douglas North is a famous Nobel Prize winning economist. He's uh, very famous for thinking about a, a neoliberal world where we can't make universal assumptions, where we have to think of institutional frameworks and how they're shaped. And there's no magic solutions. 
So in the late 90s, the 2000s, the World Bank and the IMF went from having very universal solutions, one size fits all, to a much more differentiated framework. Uh, obviously, they still exist. They're still dictating terms. But the way those questions are managed and discussed becomes more differentiated. So um, there's still capitalism, but the problems of capitalism are no longer seen as global inequalities, uh, differences between the products of the West, colonial histories. They're seen much more to be products that, that really um, are down to those in the losing end, that if you have a bad capitalism, it's down to you and the choices that you make and the institutions that structure those choices. So why call it neoliberal then, if it's so different from a liberal or, or classical kind of view? It seems like a, it seems almost like a negation of it. If it's about, you, you mentioned that it's about where liberalism might have emphasized universalism to a certain extent, obviously very exclusive, but at least ostensibly a universal outlook. This is more about difference um, and particularity. Um, so among other differences. So why, why call it neoliberal? What is it that is from liberalism that is being rehashed here? So in most people's understandings, it would be neoliberal because the aspiration is still to have a liberal world. The aspiration is to have capitalism that works, to have democracy that works. And the point is that um, rather than taking it for granted, we have to sort of govern for markets, govern for democracy. Uh, like Friedrich Hayek, he's often renowned as a, a central thinker of neoliberalism. That's exactly his argument, that you can't just let markets do their thing, you can't just have democracy, that you have to create frameworks that enable choice making, that we've moved on from like an enlightenment period where we sort of assume that individuals came before societies, that all mm -hmm. humans were abstractly the same and rational and autonomous and free to make choices. Everyone knows that we live in a, in a relational world. Even Marxists understand that that's like a fiction and that underneath that bourgeois sphere of equality, there's an inequality in the process of production. There's uh, propertyless workers meet the capitalists that own all the industry. So sort of saying that there's a problem with a liberal abstract universalism isn't, isn't necessarily a new thing. What I think is possibly new is that that critique is a dominant understanding that um, governments and international institutions would all agree today that there's no universal solutions, that we can't imagine a sort of global governance way of thinking where we have magic solutions and we just export them or impose them or give them to people. The understanding of difference and multiplicity and how that undermines a sort of classical understanding of knowledge and causality, hierarchy, power relations, that sort of common coin is no longer just something possessed by sort of radical critics, whether they're Marxists or continental philosophers or our contemporary sort of actor network theorists and post-humanists. I think every contemporary set of ideas very much focuses on relationality, on process and on differentiation. We could argue in that way that neoliberalism doesn't really exist in the way that it used to as a critique of classical liberalism. That practically all currents of contemporary thought have taken on board you know, the essence of, of a, a neoliberal understanding. Because when most people think of neoliberalism, they think of, you know, Thatcherism, a state that does um, 
very little, it's sort of laissez-faire. So this seems to be quite a, a different kind of conceptualization of neo neoliberalism. Um, so how did we go from a kind of Thatcherite kind of formation to the present? Is it very different or is it a continuation? So um, it's just, it's the nature of political concepts, I guess, that they're they're used very differently in different contexts. And I think it's similar, as I sort of tried to sort of explain before, with the concept of resilience. Resilience mm. as it emerged was all about bouncing back. It was about inner strength that um, a bridge would be resilient or like an Arctic explorer or something like that. Inner resources that enabled you to sort of overcome inequalities and, and like terrible difficulties. That's like the opposite of a, a contemporary understanding of resilience where we understand that it's not about our personal sort of strengths and stuff. It's about our openness, our understandings, our, our welcoming of vulnerabilities that then enable us to see what we need to change in the world. So um, one true that neoliberalism has been used as about sort of freeing markets and enabling strong individuals or self-entrepreneurs to come forward. I think that that's like, that's fair enough, people can use words however however they want to, but I think it doesn't really make so much sense if you think about our contemporary world and the disillusionment of sort of human capacities to know and to regulate and to control, it doesn't make that much intuitive sense to think, oh, there's this dominant discourse now that says all individuals have all these inner strengths and they can conquer all their difficulties. Um, from today's vantage point, it seems clearer that the focus on the individual and individual agency shouldn't really be confused with a classical liberal understanding that those individuals have this inherent rational self-determining capacity. So I sort of think if we think of like contemporary frameworks of thinking, I don't know, Amartya Sen, he's sort of been a famous policy thinker, processual thinker, development as freedom, different ideas of understanding and it's an agential set of understandings it's all about individual agency but in Amartya Sen's framework which was crucial for the UN's thinking of human security and human development individual agency isn't the starting point individual agency and the capacities and the capabilities of individuals are continually changing they're continually in process there's not like a fixed thing it's not something inherent to an individual it's part of a set of relations and then how we think about human development and human security is scaffolding that enabling that facilitating that so although the discourse might be about individuals about agency and about choice making it's actually about scaffolding a way of enabling that agency making sure that those choices are safe choices or enabling choices or choices that don't stop the process of continual development and a continual opening up the process of choice making. So it's very much against a classical understanding of the individual. And I think it makes more sense to us more generally to, from today's vantage point to see that that's, that was obviously what was happening in those processes of freeing individuals. Individuals weren't freed as literally autonomous. Um, it's quite clear that individuals freed in terms of the, our, our focuses on how to enable those individuals to drive policy solutions by doing the right thing rather than governments providing some solution from above. 
it became clear to me maybe about 10 or 12 years ago, I was at a policy conference on child self-esteem and it was in it was organized in Nottingham, uh, an area of a, of, a, of a lot of deprivation, uh, high levels of um, youth unemployment, teenage pregnancies. And this conference was on uh, children and, and child self-esteem as a way of enabling children to make better decisions and make better choices so that by the time they're like teenagers, they, they might decide to work um, rather than have children or um, decide to study better. Anyway, the conference is going on. There's a lot of specialists. Uh, the, the Labour Party MP is there as well. And the more, the more we discussed the issues of self-esteem, the more it became clearer that we were driven to go backwards and backwards. You know, that maybe children had poor self-esteem when they got to secondary school. So how do we think about self-esteem in primary school? And as I was sort of saying, the Labour MP says, if only we could intervene while there's still embryos in their mother's wombs, then maybe we might have a chance. So even though it's all er er sort of orientated around the individual and the agency of the individual, you can see that the more you think about if the individual is the point of intervention, then um, that set of problems enables a whole rethinking of where we think the sphere of politics is. So politics moves into society um, you know, in, in a deeper and deeper way as we struggle to address problems, not from a top-down universalist way of giving, but in terms of differences and agency and process and relations and the focus on giving individual choice center stage. So individual choice um, is different in a contemporary or neoliberal framework to individual choice in a classical liberal set of understandings. It's good that you gave that example because I was I was thinking, you know, this all sounds really good. You know, it sounds really anti-capitalist, um, you know, this idea of like bottom up and empowering people. If you didn't sort of know any better, it sounds subversive. I had this example going through my mind. I was at a just a departmental talk uh, yesterday and the talk was on um, Liberia and um, road building. And just as you were saying, um, you know, the at the end of the day, it's about capitalism. It's about enabling choice making for the end goal of sort of maintaining capitalism. I'm not sure if I'm putting words in your mouth, but this is kind of what I understood. But it's interesting because it's it's sort of maintaining capitalism not as we know it, at least not in or not as people the cliche of what capitalism is, i.e., consumer capitalism. That part of it is this questioning also of this like Rosto stages of growth where inevitably we get to this advanced consumer society and it sort of throws all of that away. We still have capitalism, but it's not going to be this advanced consumer capitalism. So this example that I had in mind was, um, so the talk was on Liberia. Obviously this is a post-war kind of situation. Um, they had a, a civil war, I believe, uh, which ended about 30 years ago and they still don't have decent roads. Um, a, a lot of the infrastructure was very difficult to build, and I think a lot of it was destroyed and couldn't be rebuilt during, obviously, a civil war situation. But it's been 30 years, and the infrastructure still is not developed. And so commodities, by the time they reach people, are very, very expensive. Um, and um, a lot of what how people have adapted to the situation is through motorcycles. And so there's this, all these projects um, sponsored by international organizations you know, the World Bank, I think, is involved um, of just like 
build slightly widening the existing footpaths that have developed and building wood kind of footpathways that are about a meter, meter and a half wide to allow the, the motorbikes to cross. And this allows a sort of very limited passage of, of people and some commodities. You know, obviously, big trucks still can't get through. Um, and I was thinking what was going around on the Internet a few. It was this conspiracy going around on the Internet a few weeks ago about, oh, is there really a war in Ukraine? <laughs> the spectacle, you know, and uh, they showed this image of a building that had been bombed out. And now the building is fine. Clearly, there's no real war being lied to. And then people were sending, showing pictures of cranes. And they were like, no, see, look, they fixed the building. And I found that really amazing that people actually found that hard to believe because they were like, this is a war zone. How are they repairing buildings so quickly? And, and the answer is, you know, they've got tons and tons of investment. And also there's just this belief that Ukraine is going to be this like advanced sort of capitalist country. And also it's a you know, it's, it's a, a, a place that's sort of sopping up investment at the moment. But Liberia, 30 years after a conflict, still doesn't have roads. They're, they're enabling, they're all, the language of this presentation was very much about, um, you know, the free market. And look, the, these, you know, the, the motorcycles develop totally of people's own initiative and so on. But you're not going to have an advanced consumer society. You're still going to have your little motorbikes and your expensive commodities if you can get them. Um, and it's sort of like naturalizing a global inequality um, that sounds very positive and very bottom up. Um, and I, I just wonder if that's um, I wonder if you could speak to that at all, if this is sort of one of the downsides of something that appears to be quite, quite progressive. Yeah. So I think for neoliberalism, there's, as I was sort of saying, there's no such thing as capitalism. Capitalism is like an abstract category. Um, I didn't ask you before, actually, who your viewers were for your podcast whether it was but in in the world of academia where i come from and i'm sure some of them are um bruno latour who died recently he's like a sort of a famous contemporary thinker philosopher and he argues a sort of very similar thing to a neoliberal framework that um these abstract categories don't really make any sense that you can talk about capitalism till the cows come home but as you say um different times different places entirely different things are happening uh there may be capitalism in Liberia and capitalism in the Ukraine, but um, it doesn't really tell you very much about how things might work. And so what he, would, what he would sort of argue is that we need to think about actors in their networks and their relationships. Those relationships are going to be material and immaterial in terms of their ideas, what they think, what their expectations are, all the rest of it. So for, for a neoliberal set of discussions, it's not it's not just about um, the materiality of the world. It's also our mindsets, our ideologies, our ideas, you know, what we, what we sort of expect and how we see ourselves as subjects in the world. And so um, the point that you're making, or you could be bred into making, that in Ukraine people had a, a different mentality of bouncing back quicker, of expecting things, of um, maybe higher levels of trust, you know, whatever the situation might be like. In, or at in least the international organizations had an expectation of what Ukraine should be like that they well, didn't have for Liberia. So maybe, maybe. I mean, there's like a thousand different ways of thinking about those relations and those preconditions. All we're definitely clear about is that those differences manifest themselves and there is an, an obvious monocausal thing. Sometimes when international organizations are doing development work, they send the cleverest experts in the world or whatever with the most degrees, they don't really make any difference. Sometimes they might send a lot of money or resources, 
they don't necessarily make any difference because I think the sort of the idea is that there's no sort of magic bullet. It's a set of relations, path dependencies. Um, these things are quite complex that we can't just assume that just because we're Western and clever or wealthy or we have a lot of tanks or whatever it might be, that we can just impose our will on the world. So as you quite rightly say, near, a neoliberal framework is saying, yeah, there are differences that, that we make our own capitalism or whatever, that, that we make our own understanding of the human, that we make our own democracies. Some people's democracies work, some of them don't. It's not because of some technical issue necessarily, it's because of like a whole set of other sort of relations, inequalities, beliefs, expectations, you know, all these other things that you sort of say that um, what neoliberalism does is it draws us more and more and more into the society, into the object to think about differences. And in that understanding of how differences make differences, how we're always in the middle, in that understanding of how we're always in the middle of those processes, what we lose track of are those traditional sort of 19th century social science grand categories of capitalism, of the human, of class struggle or, or whatever. Those all tend to disappear because our focus is on the active agency of individuals making choices in real moments. Now, I think maybe for like a couple of hundred years, that set of thinking, that shift towards real people in real context has been seen as a radical and critical understanding because modernity was alive and well. Classical liberalism was alive and well with its universal sort of understandings, its telos of progress and things can only get bigger and better. But in a world where modernity and universal liberalism is not so healthy, um, these sorts of ideas that were radical, were critical, um, then become um, constructs through which we understand problems and govern ourselves. And therefore, they at least sort of call for a, like a rethink in how we might normatively, politically, ethically, whatever, think about them. Just because a set of ideas was critical in deconstructing that abstract universalism, um, doesn't mean that they were wrong or right at the time or wrong or right now. It just means that we should always be open to, to thinking about how ideas are constructed in particular contexts. So that's all me and Julian were doing in the neoliberal subject, but we were looking at how, you know, there's no point in criticizing ideas that everyone immediately dislikes. Our job as academics is just to criticize ideas that everyone likes. So we're just looking at these ideas of resilience, adaptation, vulnerability, how they sound so appealing to us, how the attention to difference, to relation, to process seems to be empowering and a challenge to power uh, and that sort of thing, and, and how we might need to, to rethink that. I don't think we come up with any magic solutions. Um, as we said at the, the front of the program, uh, at that point, we didn't really agree with each other in terms of where we were coming from or where we were going. So I guess it's more a set of observations and an attempt to study at least how neoliberal discourses, as we call them, make sense. What is it that makes resilience, adaptation, vulnerability appealing when not so long ago in the past, vulnerabilities were seen as negative? In today's world, vulnerabilities are what? enable us to access the possibilities of change. It's only by recognizing our vulnerabilities that we're able to deal with the threat of climate change or, 
or other social sort of economic situations. So um, all this terminology, all these concepts seem to be sort of recast in a in a in our more contemporary moment. And it's really just think just thinking through that and being open to those understandings that, that we're trying to do. Because I think in academia, in politics, you can get very easily get stuck in a sort of mindset where you, you know, words are evil or good or, or whatever. And um, you know, the world moves on and I guess we have to sort of move with it in a in a sort of open but critical way. In in one of your papers, um, you mentioned that you you prefer the term post-liberal to signify that it's not a, con a a continuation of the liberal project, but it's destruction, something along those lines. Do you still believe that? Um, yeah. So I'm. I think it, to me, and I'm not alone. I don't think it's it's sort of clear that the liberal set of universal assumptions that enabled our frameworks of law and politics and our separations of the real world and the artificial sphere of equality and reason and, you know, sort of linear causality, that um, those abstractions, that sort of way of representing social science, natural science, um, they seem to have exhausted themselves. Um, they don't. They don't seem to be able to deliver the promises that they used to, and in in their inability to do that, it begins to taint the whole of modernity. That um, the story of the Enlightenment and progress becomes not a story of progress, but a story of disavowal, a story of um, genocide, of dispossession, uh, of ecocide, of like a war on the world rather than an attempt to sort of humanize that world so um and you could you got you can understand that process that shift that dissolution in a number of ways you could see it as like climate change and global warming have taught us that science and progress couldn't deliver that we couldn't see a lot of our relationships and our entanglements you could see it as like a, a collapse of a political social project of change and transformation there's different ways in which you might read that disillusionment. But um, however you might argue about how we got here, the fact that we're here has an extremely corrosive effect on uh, traditional ways of thinking about politics and about human agency and what it means to address problems in the world. So how how would we, I, I know that you said that you didn't, that you came, it was sort of a critique and you weren't sure at the time at least how to maybe move beyond that. But how if, you know, this is obviously not obviously, but this is a Marxist kind of podcast ablation. If you if you know anything about, um, you know, Hegelian Marxism, you know, that's where we've drawn the uh, the term from the name of our of our company. Um, so do you have any sense of, you know, if, if for someone who wants to be progressive, someone who wants to move the world forward and is confused about how to do so, how should we make sense of things like resilience or building self-esteem. Um, isn't that an important part of a movement for progress? I guess um, there's many, many types of Marxists. I would say, you know, I have a Marxist background myself. And, you know, what, what does it mean to be a Marxist in our contemporary moment? Um, I sort of think that, that, um, Ideas on their own, you know, don't sort of 
change, that ideas are a reflection of, of the worlds that we live in and that contemporary subjectivities uh, are important to sort of to engage with and to sort of problematize and deconstruct. So I wouldn't understand Marxism as a certain set of beliefs or goals or something that's like fixed and needs to be wheeled out to solve problems or to educate people in some sort of way. So I would sort of think if I was a Marxist and I consider myself to be a Marxist, what would I do in this sort of contemporary moment where I see a lot of very a dominant set of ideas and understandings that um that aren't really opened up to question or or to engagement. How would I do that in my field of academia? So that tends to be what I do. So um, I, yeah, I don't think that there's any point in talking about being a Marxist as part of a collective project or movement, as if you could just imagine an extension of a modernist project and modernity was alive and well and just sort of sleeping a little bit or, or something. So I can't imagine exactly how to be a Marxist in that sort of way. Often I sort of think about maybe a similar situation in terms of a Marxist coming to terms with historical defeat, maybe like the Frankfurt School post uh, the Holocaust and fascism, uh, how to sort of do critique in a world which was so obviously revealed to be so entirely degraded. Um, and then the difficulty of doing critique and the struggles that the differences within the school, the struggles that some, some people face to try and take some distance from the immediacy of the world, from a knee-jerk response to just rebuild what had already failed, to just try one more time to repeat certain arguments. I mean, you think about, I mean, obviously you might say they were just grumpy old men, the ones that survived or whatever, mainly men, not entirely. But think about Adorno being grumpy in his room and the 68 student youth are rebelling and he's sort of going, oh, this is crazy. You know, this is a world historical defeat for the working class. And you think you can just, you know, th you know, throw a few slogans and, um, you know, create a new world out of nothing. So it's a difficult moment, I think, even more difficult moment than the Frankfurt School moment. Um, so, yeah, I'm not in a rush to sort of reclaim anything from the past. I think we need to take a step back and to understand that the moment that we, we live in to, to start with and to think through the consequences of uh, those defeats rather than sort of wish them away. So I'd like to, yeah, I, I guess the task would be to sort of stay with that realize that the corrosiveness uh, conceptually, subjectively, not just in the material way. So yeah, I don't have any sort of easy solutions to that, I don't think. Yeah, that's part of what um, at least I'm trying to do at the moment is sort of think through I, I my whole you know, thesis and a lot of my work is that, and I use a lot of your work in my work, and I hope I don't misunderstand it. But, um, you know, I look at, I've looked at happiness and well-being and mindfulness and mental health um, as these kind of um, ways of constructing subjectivity and inviting people to inhabit a particular kind of subjectivity that I think is quite limited or can be quite limited. Obviously, people wouldn't um, accept the invitation if it didn't offer something. It definitely offers a uh, 
a, a range of things. It offers people an identity, a, a group um, that you can connect to, um, you know, thinking about, you know, just basic ideas of the sick role, you know, <laughs> it allows you to say that you're blameless for a number of things. And I think that's important when in the past, maybe we stigmatize particular ways of being. Now, at least these, these labels, these vulnerabilities, this acceptance of vulnerability allows institutions to kind of be more open to people. On the other hand, um, they can invite a subjectivizing or a, a rooting of social problems in the brain um, and in choice making and in and in something inherent to humanity that will just never move beyond the way where things are right now, because the way things are right now is a reflection of an essential kind of human weakness. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to think through how to move beyond that. I mean, obviously we can't just like dig around in the past and pull out, oh, the enlightenment thought that the subject was like this, let's just rehash that. Um, and in fact, one of the reasons why um, subjectivity has been so degraded on the left is that, well, I mean, look what happened when people tried to engage in a kind of like active world making. You know, we had the Holocaust, <laughs> we had the USSR, you know, the, the subject of absolute self-creation was eugenics. Um, and then I'm trying to kind of steer away out of that because on the one hand, we have this very limiting kind of reaction to that that was sort of like, whoa, 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 the human hand on the world is can be quite dangerous. Um, but on the other hand, I think the only way that we can move out of some of these problems is to realize that, yes, as human beings, we are subjective, <laughs> we have emotions, and this is all really important and an important part of critique, but it can't be all that there is we still need to use our reason to understand the world and to attempt to change it, not just in ourselves, but in the actual world. That's what I think anyway. Um, and so I, I wonder, like, is there some way of having a, a, a sort of rehashing a more dynamic kind of subject, or maybe we have to just let go of that entirely? Yeah. So, I guess it depends on our understanding of our historical conjuncture. If we thought it was like a sort of a world historical defeat, that um, this was a deep period of reaction where even things that seem radical and critical um, just suborn us in like new ways to be to be governed and subjected. Um, the, the, if we lived in that sort of world, then someone coming along and talking about the problems that we need to address and how we need to use human reason for this and that, I would, I would tend to be skeptical. I would say, before we start addressing the problems of the world, we need to be, begin to understand why we are or where we are. Because the moment someone wants to bring back politics, uh, a subject above the world, a sense of knowing, maybe, you know, a sense of, often with climate change, it's a sense of emergency and immediacy. You just know that um, the moment you step into the world of problem solving in a world without any, in a world of historical defeat, without any radical possibilities of um, thinking things through otherwise, that um, that's just another way of being suborned, another avenue towards um, of, of being of demoralization and defeat and disillusionment and um how to avoid that how to avoid the lure of the world how to not just wish you could just keep going on 
which which to me is a is a product of a left wing approach. You know, we used to think that um, a left wing approach was always critical, and the you know the he hegemony was always into solving problems to maintain capitalism or something. You realize that the left can't exist without problem solving. The left always has to sort of demonstrate itself in some way as being productive, um, as being helpful, as enabling, as differentiating. Um, the left continually has to bring the world back in order to save it. And um, that's why I was sort of, already I was sort of intimating the need to sort of take a step back from that sort of knee-jerkism. Um, because, because we don't live in a world like that. Um, I wish we did. And if only you could just be positive and collectively engage around a problem, rebuild some sense of community. You know, you can imagine a sort of a, a sort of a left-wing fairy tale where as long as we identify the right problem, the community will sort of build itself and through that struggle there'll be a process of re-education and everything, you know, and eventually classes will come back and class consciousness and then a vanguard. And then all the books that we have on the bottom shelf or in the garage or something that Marx and Trotsky and Lenin wrote, we can get them out and use them again. Um, I personally, I don't buy into something like that at all. I think that the difficult task of rebuilding a critical community is saying no, is saying no to these demands that as people from the left, we immediately engage ourselves in problem solving and world saving or or solutions to something um the art of saying no the art of refusal is is something that that urgently needs needs to be developed because all we get all we're bombarded with is the terribleness the degradedness of the world the one disaster after another disaster uh, whether you call it capitalism whether you call it like limited mindsets or whatever so um I sort of, I would sort of think um, about how to refuse that. And I'm not sure whether people from the left are open to a critical approach, uh, an attempt to rebuild a, a political project for our times rather than being continually driven to just rerun the past. I, I just don't think that that's feasible today. And I don't think from our our contemporary subjectivities that could that could ever be the case however i'm happy to be wrong you know i think let a thousand flowers bloom and you know, there you go but um that's my personal view that i'm just sharing with you and your viewers so what, what you mean is is that we need to sort of sit back and and think about um so I'm, I'm just wondering how to what this would look like that isn't a recipe for apathy um, so I think obviously, you know, you don't want to be pulled into this sort of disaster and emergency rhetoric where there's no time to think you have to act, you have to act, people are suffering, do something now. But at the same time, we want to solve some kind of problem in the world. I mean, obviously, there's the cliche that Marxists think that, oh, well, you know, we can defer all the problem solving problems until there's the revolution. <laughs> so is there kind of a, like a middle ground or, 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 you know, what does this look like? I sort of think like it's just a sort of, to me, it's a basic Marxist type of position. You know, in a world of revolutionary struggle, you would be doing revolutionary struggle. In a time of historical reaction and defeat, you'd be hanging out in the British Library, 
you would be reading books, you would be thinking, you would be de deconstructing the dominant ideological categories of the world. It wouldn't have to be like waving a lot of flags and being active and solving problems. You're, um, you're not being necessarily apathetic or whatever. You're just not engaging in that sort of politics, in that sort of problem solving. But um, sometimes are quieter times and sometimes are louder times. Uh, the history of the left is the a desire to be loud. The, the louder you shout, the more you sort of virtue signal, the more left you are. So I think trying to unlearn or, you know, remove ourselves from that sort of habitat, I think it is a struggle. You know, everyone is virtue. Everyone is forcing you to virtue signal. Who do you support in this? What do you think about that? What are you doing for this thing? How have you done your bit for the climate today? How are you supporting the Ukraine? To my mind, it's just about, no, but thank you. You know, you might not appreciate my non-engagement with that sort of way of doing politics and demonstrating care and community. But, you know, that's, it's that that's the difficult thing, it seems to me. I think part of the impasse that we're, we have right now is that there's an absent subject in terms of, you know, Marx and Engels put all their faith in the working class as the revolutionary subjects, subject. Um, one of my favorite quotes is from Lenin's obituary of Engels, where he says, um, most, most people at that time, in Marx and Engels' time, um, looked with horror on the working class and were even more horrified as it grew with the growth of industry. Uh, and Marx and Engels were totally unique in putting all of their hope in the working class and becoming more hopeful the more it grew. Um, and I wonder, like, it's not like the working class was, so there's this, there's this widespread view you know, we had to sort of reckon with the with the defeats of the Second World War and so on, and, and why there wasn't a revolution, why the revolution never spread and so on. And the answer was subjectivity. The answer was the working class. You know, Gramsci said, well, it's not that people want to um, be free. They want to be the oppressors. They don't want to emancipate themselves. They want to be the oppressors. And there were all these sorts of ideas, um, you know, obviously a, a large part of the new left was cultural critique. And the answer was, well, our mass culture kind of destroyed the subject among other things. And so now that's kind of where we are, where there's the subject is the working class as the revolutionary subject is destroyed. There's no sense at all that, um, that emancipation lies with the proles, you know? <laughs> um, and in fact, it, there's this idea that the subjectivity of the working class must be first reformed in order to make them suitable to be revolutionary. Um, but of course, during Marx and Engels' times, it's, time, it's not like these people had wonderful anti-racist ideas in their head um, and were kind to their pets and to their partners and children or whatever. And yet Marx and Engels put so much faith in them. Um, and I'm not sure that there is a way forward that that we there is a way forward without that subject as long as that absence is and as long as that absence is there as long as there's this emptiness where the revolutionary subject used to be yeah but before the revolutionary subject marx and engels developed a figurative subject a subject that was um in the world but not of the world that had that had nothing in the world no stake nothing to lose but its chains um that was a, a subject positionality of, of critique, of ending the world, of failing, to, of like ensuring that you weren't lured into that continual reproduction of supporting ourselves to, uh, you know, the, 
the problems of hegemony. And um, what got lost, I sort of think, in the development of Marxism as a sort of social project was, as you correctly say, this sort of romanticization of somehow it's about identity with it, um, as we'd understand it now, that there's something about being working class. Marx and Engels were hu hugely hostile to any confusion of their figurative sort of subject that was could only ever destroy itself and destroy the world to create the possibilities of something else and some celebration of an identity of working class culture or something like that. Um, so I sort of think that you can think um, in, a, in a contemporary moment, as I was saying earlier, with a crisis of Marxism, in the same way as the Frankfurt School theorists also sought to bring back a sort of critical positionality that was not in the world, that did not depend upon an identity with the world, with the historical defeat of politics based on real living identities in struggle. Um, we can think about how does that work contemporarily for us today? What areas of thought equally argue against identity politics, but still have a positionality of critique? Um, to my mind, in the maybe in the ontological turn in critical black studies, Afro-pessimism, similar related um, strains of thought, there's also an engagement of critique, which is anti-identity politics. And um, to my mind, it's like thinking through what it might mean to do a critique without its dependence upon literal subjects in the world of literal identities, um, that might be a, a productive area of engagement. Now that's an entirely opposite area of engagement to the problem solving thing, to uh, if we just engage around issues, we can rebuild things. We can basically construct identities or change identities. That to me is like hardly any different from what we're describing as neoliberalism. This sort of attempts, this way of understanding individuals as objects rather than subjects. Individuals that need to be shaped and structured and enabled and capacity built to then understand that capitalism needs, needs to be ended in a working class project of revolutionary transformation. Um, as you may have gathered already, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of that sort of neoliberal construction that way of engaging in a society in order to enable people to make better choices and understand themselves politically in different ways. I think if you were to ask me, as far as I understand it, that was been a problem of left-wing politics because they confused the working class as a sort of an, an ontological, structural, political positionality with real people. They then set out to neoliberalized to convert to enable and facilitate facilitate people to think differently as if it was about those literal people rather than a political philosophical project and as if that project literally depended on those people obeying them or doing something or reading some book correctly um there's no point in crying over spilt milk or, or anything like that. And, um, you know, what's done is done and all the rest of it. But in rethinking that tradition, in rethinking what it might mean to have a political project uh, and, stru and structurally think through the preconditions of being critical today, bearing in mind those traditions and those histories, um, I sort of think, as I've, as I've said, really, that just engaging, rebuilding, doing those sorts of things. It's, it's, um, 
it would be laughable if it wasn't undertaken by people who saw themselves as inheritors of some sort of radical or Marxist legacy. So I sort of think a very different approach would be necessary. But I'm happy to be wrong, like with anything. You know, I would hate the thought of being correct on any of these issues because it would be a little bit dark. Well, how, what would it mean then to treat people not as objects, but as subjects? Because it seems like when people assert their subjectivity in the world, you get this like, oh, well, not like that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, sort of, I sort of think that like you, having a project that you want to win people towards is treating people like objects because you're sort of thinking that you need to convert them to something. And so what I'm suggesting is is not having the the politics has to be not the politics of already knowing stuff and having a project and that sort of way of stuff it has to be sort of an anti-politics politics is is the most destructive and degrading thing at the moment politics is to me neoliberalism after in in the situation as i understand it of a historical defeat um any engagement with politics like that is um is an attempt to like um, get people to be taking responsibility for reproducing um, the problems of the world. It's a it's an act of disavowal of it's a it's a denial of the world that we live in, and uh, you know, an attempt to sort of use activity and participation and some sort of futural promise um, to sort of perpetuate that that denial. So um, that's that's. Um, I don't. I don't consider a, um, a, you know, trying to build a critical positionality as anything connected to, in engagement, political engagement in the world. I think that we need, you know, the, just jumping to that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, it makes it assumes all the things that we shouldn't be assuming. So um, yeah. I might be wrong, and that, you know, that's fine, as I say. You know. Well, at the end of Marx's life, one of the last things that he tried to do was he tried to do a survey. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. He tried to do a survey of, of workers and ask them all kinds of questions about, you know, what their working conditions was like, were like, and what they wanted, and, and all of that. Um, do you think that was an attempt to kind of meet people as subjects? No one answered. Know. <laughs> so I don't know I didn't know he did that and I don't know what was going on but you know we could sort of see similar experiments say like the work of uh, W.B. Du Bois um, you know those sorts of ways of engagements of bringing communities into appearance through survey work questionnaires there's a whole sort of there's revolutionary traditions and conservative traditions of how how we might you know transform the appearance and the being of communities and individuals and you know put them on a map uh, enable their voices to be heard in different ways etc um what i'm sort of thinking is that um those those are often addressing different problems to the problems that we might face now as critical thinkers at the end or after the end of a certain revolutionary radical marxist tradition so I, I personally don't know how a survey would serve those particular ends although I oh, can I'm not saying that we should have a survey but I mean the, the kind of like underlying idea of it I mean at the time it was quite radical no one had ever thought of doing it no, I mean I'm sure people had but it 
you know, it's quite a new thing. Now everybody's surveyed to death. It's just, it's like uh, just another form of management. Yeah, I'm not sure. And um, I can imagine that surveys would be useful to do, as I said, all sorts of things, you know, surveys in workplace. There's all, there's all sorts, I'm sure there's all sorts of subliminal underlying um, discontents and different ways of thinking. There's a lot of things in the world and uh, some of them are better than others and some of them are obscured, marginalized, uh, oppressed in countless ways. However, in our particular historical conjuncture, it's not obvious that those repressed and disavowed ways of thinking and doing and knowing um, are going to be helpful to us. That's all I'm sort of saying. In other times, I can imagine um, that they would that would be essential to to shine a light on and to sort of challenge and enable and, and those sorts of things. I think that's a good place to to leave it. Um, was there anything that you wish I'd asked that I didn't ask that you <laughs> that you wanted to put forward? I don't think so. Uh, actually, you sort of asked more than I wished you would, would have asked. So already, so <laughs> I think I'm fine. 